Up next on episode 45 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss what a program manager does, the value or lack thereof of a functional spec and vision statement, building developer community, and planning your development time from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. I saw you wrote another, well, we don't call it a blog because you get angry when you call your writing a blog. (laughs) It's not a blog! (laughs) It's not a blog! It was an extended tweet. Yes, it was a very, very long Twitter message about what a program manager does, correct? Yeah. Because, you know, the, the terms are confusing. Different people use different terms, different titles for different jobs. You know, people are like, well, that's just a business analyst plus a user interaction designer minus a project manager with a little bit of program analyzer in there. And I right. figure, you know what? I got my own terminology <laughs> and, I got, and I'm going to use it. Yeah. And so if I, if I can just kind of promulgate th- this terminology through my blog, then I don't have to accommodate everybody else's words for what they use for that job. I can just impose my own ideas on the whole world. Well, I enjoyed it because it's one of those jobs where it is really hard to describe what it is and what it does and how it works. And it's kind of one of those titles that's just so a little bit generic enough that nobody can really ever figure it out. And and you know what? They they just, they they really, you know, all all those things get done, but the question is to who does them. And, and, and what jobs should be combined with other jobs and what jobs should be separated and stuff like that uh, is, I, I think, actually is quite relevant. I think that um, I think if, if, if people learn nothing else, it's that having somebody whose job is just to be the user advocate and argue with the developers and sort of, sort of own the design but not really own the implementation creates a requirement that those people reach consensus. And you just get better designs that way because of the trouble that people have understanding each other. Instead of just doing the first thing you would naturally do, you, you, you do get a better design. Is my and point. you have to wear Banana Republic chinos. That's just a coincidence. And in fact, that was one of the scary things that used to happen at, at Microsoft is like, you'd be like, all right, I need a new sweater. So you'd go to the Bellevue Square Mall and, you know, there's a gap there or a Banana Republic. And you'd be like, hmm, this is a nice looking sweater. And you take it. And then Monday morning, you get to work at Microsoft. Every other program manager at the company would have the same sweater on. <laughs> I'm envisioning something like, like happy days for some reason. <laughs> it was happy. Yes. But a little bit terrifying. Yeah. yeah, there's really not that many fashion alternatives at the Bellevue Square Mall for, for men. That's, I think that's really what it comes down to. One line that uh, was a little disturbing to me in this was the uh, the line about uh, having a spec is part of being agile. Let me find the exact quote here. Well, yeah. Writing a functional specification is at the very heart of agile development. 
So I think we probably should talk a little bit about that because <laughs> I think that statement standalone is kind of a problem. I think you put some context around it in the post that makes it okay. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm try- okay, there you go. Well, first of all, uh, it is true that, that, that there are a lot of agile methodologies, including, for example, extreme programming, that say silly things like the code is the spec or the test, ca- the test cases are the spec, which I think is a little bit, you know, test cases are the spec. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 where's, in, in, what, in what way does a test case say, you know, the following words appear on the following dialog boxes? That's, I mean, a test case is in, in 1963-style coding where you, you had a bunch of punch cards and you read them in and you did the following analysis and you produced the following numbers. Then you could probably write test cases, which are a good enough spec. But for any kind of like web-based graphical design, well, you have to have some kind of, you know, modern software with with GUIs and maybe w- w- either a web or GUI interface, you have to have something that shows what it's supposed to look like, and that's not the test case. That doesn't make any sense. Um, well, I, I read this as, and you know, Stack Overflow, the building of Stack Overflow is pretty anti-process. Uh, yep. But even then, we had something, I guess we could call it a spec. I mean, I didn't really think of it as spec so much as figure were, out what the hell mock-ups. it is There were some screen we're mock-ups, weren't there? Did you guys yeah. have screen? I definitely remember seeing mock-ups of what the screen should look like. We did. But yeah. I don't really consider that a spec so much as, like I said, just figure out what the hell it is you're doing. Basically, just don't just randomly start coding. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of how I read this. And, well, you know, I think for every developer, there is a temptation to just sit down and immediately start writing code. Here's here's what and, it is. There, there, is a, there is a continuum. There's a continuum between defining nothing and sitting down and writing code and defining every single last detail until you're absolutely certain exactly what the code is that you're going to write. And you have to find the right place to be on that continuum, depending on your, your, your situation. And I don't mean to just say there is no issue here. I feel like you should be pretty far along that continuum. I think Stack Overflow, uh, I'll use as a great example of, you know, you guys got away with it because you're brilliant. Uh, but uh, on the average team, you, you wouldn't quite get away with it. And so where, where you need to be on that continuum, in, in, in my opinion, the more you think about things, if you have actually nailed down everything that the user sees and all the behaviors behind those things, like when I click on this, this will happen – if you've got that nailed down, you're done. I don't care how you do it, whether you do it with big old whiteboard you know, diagrams or you've just made um, illustrations. There's a really good mock-up program called Balsamic. Is that the name of it? It's a, it's a, yep, it's a, it's a great simplified drawing program for making mock-ups of web UIs. And, um, and then a lot of annotations saying clicking on this button will do the following things. And we're going to have the following features. And we're going to do the following stuff. And it will work in the following ways. And... Um, you know, almost all the arguments I've heard against doing this are often just have these major, major logical fallacies. So, for example, the most common reason I've heard against specs, and it is true, I, I, and I did say this in the article, it's really important to, to know that the way a lot of people do specs is extremely bureaucratic and very useless. And I completely am very, very sympathetic to the reaction against bureaucratic and, and useless specs. I'm, I'm, I'm totally sympathetic. Don't do those. Do, do good specs that are useful and meaningful. And... Um, and uh, one particular fallacy that I hear all the time is, ah, oh, the spec is never up to date. You're going to need a million changes. The code is going to have, you know, when you get to actually writing the code, you're going to discover 16 things that have to change, and then do you update the spec or not, and blah, blah, blah. And you can never nail these things down, so don't even try. And to me, that's just a complete fallacy. To me, code is about, like writing code is about getting the exact right solution to a problem, which you can think of as sort of searching a, a, a solution space. And the spec is all about, minimizing the size of the solution space that you have to explore while you're writing code. 
It's all about let us nail down as many questions as we possibly can before we start writing code while being fully aware that more questions will come up when we do write code just because at least we will have nailed those down. And that's better than not nailing anything down because it just means that, first of all, you know where you're going. You know you're going to get there. You've thought through the issues you can make. You say, hmm, you know, maybe we shouldn't do it this way because then that other thing won't work. There's all kinds of problems you notice when you start writing the spec that you can fix. And, uh, and then when you go to actually implement the code, um, you might implement it the right way the first time instead of having to implement one thing and then refactor because you kind of know what's coming up. You, you've seen the whole – you have the whole big picture already in your head and you can think, you know, I'm going to need, um, like, let's say that, uh, um, you know, you're going to implement something and it's got a couple of places where people can edit. And um, you want to provide some kind of a, you know, like the WMD editor or, or some kind of a WYSIWYG editing object. Well, if you know in advance that you're going to need an editor in two different places, then you're going to make sure that your editing code is very modular and easy to be moved from place to place. Whereas if you don't know that in advance, you might actually kind of hardwire that piece of editing code into 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 one place and then have to do some make some big effort you know then lifting it or 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 moving it to another place and some people would say that's just bad object oriented design and i would say your things are going to change and you want to minimize the number of things that change you want to plan as much as you can in advance and it seems to me to be fairly obvious well you said you want to plan as much as you can in advance i think you want to do enough planning and I think enough is one of those terms that can be debated because you link to the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the 37 signals article of, you know, getting real step one, no functional spec. And what they argue here is that you just write a one, basically a vision statement, not even mock-ups. No, no, even. that's not actually what, that's not what, what, the trouble is that the no functional spec, I think that Jason wrote a very confusing article, which is why I sort of linked to him. <laughs> he, he said this very confusing thing. Don't write a functional spec. And, wh- and then he proceeds to describe what to me is a functional spec. He says, all you do is describe every screen and have some annotations explaining how it works. And that yeah, to well, me is a functional that's... spec. What else is, especially for an app like Basecamp, where what you see is what you get. There's not a whole lot of magical f- functionality going on behind the scenes. So it's really pretty much describing the surface of that application, every screen and every dialog box. That's, mm-hmm. and, and the user stories. That's a spec. That's all it is. And so it's very weird. It, it, I, I think what Jason is really trying to say is don't do these big bureaucratic I, – I don't know what. He's probably seen some pretty bad specs in the past um, that were just like words for the sake of words that were typed by people and never read, that were meaningless, that were bureaucratic, that had all kinds of sections that you had to fill out that weren't filled out because they weren't relevant. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. So I, I don't think I'm – I'm that far off from Jason. I feel like uh, his experience, the type of apps that 37 Signals has, has developed um, are, uh, you know, if you look at Campfire, Basecamp, uh, Tadalist even, they're all the kinds of things where most of the functionality is visible from the user interface. And so actually just kind of wireframing the user interface is about as much specification as you can do before you really need to just start writing code. And so I can see why that's his perspective. On the other hand, I consider that to be a functional spec, and so that was sort of my my point there. Well, I don't know if that's entirely accurate. I mean, I'm looking at the article. Okay. I've, I've read it. Um, I, I think what he was saying is definitely have a vision statement. Which, and so think, thinking about okay, what so we had on Stack Overflow, we definitely had the vision statement in terms of this is like a one-page summary of what we think we're doing right. in text. Yep. Um, and, and that's important ever, to have, like have the elevator pitch. Yeah. It's, just, it's like, how do you explain what you're doing to someone that doesn't, isn't a programmer? Right. If you can't do that, you have a serious problem. Like, you don't really know what you're building. And 
I found that that was surprisingly common on projects that I worked on. Like, you would walk up to somebody on the project and say, hey, what are we actually doing here? What, what is the purpose of this? What's and the they couldn't really we're trying to solve? summarize it. Yeah. You know, yeah, what problem are you trying to solve? And just explain it to me in like a paragraph. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't do that. And th- that's really dangerous. So I think it is important to have a vision statement. But I know yeah. on Stack Overflow, we had that. But we also had semi-detailed mock-ups of what we thought the screens should look like. And from my reading, and, and I have it in front of me, of what they're talking about with getting real, they're saying essentially go build the HTML and CSS. You know, um, like once you have the vision. No, statement. he says first, first with some quick and simple paper sketches. Oh, he HTML. does say that, but he says then directly into HTML. That's true. Yep. So yeah, look, and, he, right. and he's look. He is right it's just in that saying one sentence though. Yeah, he is right in saying that you don't need a paragraph of text to try to describe a graphical interface to try to describe the login box. But, I mean, I'm sure that he, he starts with paper sketches and they draw it and then they say, okay, this is wrong and they erase things and they draw them again. And that's, uh, that's design. And then if there were functionality, I mean, there, there's a one-page story. He talks about a one-page story and um, uh, that to me, what's the one-page story? That's not, that's not a spec. Yeah, it's, it's a really light spec, sure. It, it, it's, it's only light in the sense that he – don't forget, they're, 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 he's building very, very light apps. True. So if you were building something, if you were building a uh, programming environment with an IDE, which he's not, but he doesn't, ha- he doesn't really tell you how you would build a programming environment with an IDE. He's building Tada list. Right. Yeah, you're right. Now that, I, now that I've seen that sentence, somehow I missed that sentence. But yeah, first with some quick and simple paper sketches, then directly into HTML. And that's, so, that, yeah, that's, that's okay. I, and actually, and that's why I like uh, Balsamic, actually, because it's a great way to do those paper sketches without paper. Um, and... You do that stuff, and the most important thing is something we're trying to work on right now. We're building a new application in a space that's it's really it's really kind of complicated. It's way more complicated than uh, anything we've done before in terms of complexity, uh, and it's also um, more complicated than uh, certainly any of the Thirty Seven Signals apps. And it's the kind of thing that's just really hard to get. And we want a good use. We want we we're, we're basically having lengthy, lengthy debates about how to, how to make this easier to use and how to make it less complicated than it already is because it's a naturally very complicated space. I won't say what it is, but it's the kind of thing that's just like a little bit too complicated for regular people to understand, and we need to make it easy enough for regular people to understand. And the ultimate goal of this process, the thing I want to get out of all these debates we're having in discussions and design meetings that we've been having, is I want to get some typical user scenarios where we say, all right, here's a typical user. They need to do the following thing. And then I want to see screenshots. They don't have to be pixel perfect. They can just be illustrations on a piece of paper that say, so the user goes to this screen and they click on this button and then this thing happens and then they go to that other screen and they click on that other button and that other thing happens. And when they're done, they go here and the following thing. And if this happens, that can happen. And then here's another user scenario. The other user is trying to do this other kind of thing. So they go to that other screen and they, they, they type something in this box. And I want to look at those screens and say, okay, is that... Is that easy to use if we made it as simple as we possibly can? And there's no question that for the kind of things we're building, we have to go through that process. And we're really exploring a very, very large design space. And, uh, and I, I hate using the term. It sounds, it sounds so jargony. We're exploring design space. You know, it's like a computer science way of saying things. Right. But there's this, there's this N-dimensional gigantic hypercube of all the possible solutions to how to design the thing that we want to design. And we're just wandering around in there trying to find the best one. And I need to be able to move quickly, you know, in this, in this exploration. And I think, that, um, I think that some of the approaches, like a classic Kent Beck extreme programming with one-week cycles, 
where you just say, okay, what's the minimum thing that would possibly be helpful? Okay, build that. Now modify it. And then and, and doing these things literally on one-week cycles or even on Scrum four-week cycles, um, I, I, you know, that, that might work for certain types of applications, but I do not believe that that would ever get us to a design breakthrough where we have a, a large, complicated bunch of functionality that we've actually made simpler. Right. No, I, I agree with that. That that makes sense. Um, I and and as I said at the top, I and mean, we certainly as as anti-process as I am and continue to be, we still had a pretty solid. I mean, we spent quite a while coming up with, you know, just planning what it is we were going to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the one lesson to take out of this is the one failure mode is is definitely just randomly starting coding, and it still does happen. And I know that I still have very. Tempting. I'm still tempted to do that myself I am too. sometimes. I am too. Yeah. So you really have to watch out for that. So I think as long as you're doing some level of planning beyond let's just randomly start coding, <laughs> right, right, you're kind of you're kind of winning, and then it's just really up to your team and you and the scale of what you're building. Like you said, with the small apps that Thirty Seven Signals was building, they don't need a giant spec. So nope. a very tiny, you know, vision statement plus some mockups is probably more than enough. And that's kind of what we did for Stack Overflow. So I think you have to yeah. scale it to what you're building. Uh, and yeah. obviously, if you're right, you know. A lot of times you can tell what details are, are, are obviously not going to be worth thinking about. Like you can, it's very safe. Like in Stack Overflow, we had that, you know, we had that WMD box. It was very safe for us not even to d- design that so much, just to say there's got to be some kind of box where you can put the code in. We'll find the appropriate control to use later. I mean, right. do we really have to define that? No, we're going to put something in. It's very easy to drop something else in if the first thing we put in doesn't work. Um, that's kind of okay. What we do, what, what, but I'm trying to think. Uh, in the case of Stack Overflow, the vision statement kind of things of Stack Overflow were we knew that it was a Q&A site with voting, like Reddit, with a wiki, like Wikipedia, so that you could edit things so that they would stay up to date, with um, karma and badges like Xbox 360 so that you would be motivated to participate and provide high-quality answers. And that's what we knew, right? That's, that's pretty much what we thought. And, and we knew that it had to be um, pretty much the opposite of the sites that are out there, and that it would be completely open, visible to Google, um, very internet friendly, not not a walled garden where you have to pay to get into it, or we just sort of p- play nasty SEO tricks with Google. And and that's I, what I really think. No, I agree with that. And, and that was totally, our if you can't, if you can't give the elevator pitch for what you're doing, you have mm-hmm. serious problems, really serious problems. Oh, for sure. Some that is actually, that I think, more common. Yeah. Than failing to have any plans at all. Usually people have plans, but their plans are so discombobulated that they can't, they can't explain what they're doing. And yeah. that's really the deeper problem. Like, if you can't explain to a layman what you're doing and have it make sense, you need to really rethink what you're doing, like, entirely. Well, sometimes you just have uh, explaining problems. A more common case is where there's something that I've seen. Uh, you know what? I'm going to name it right now. Uh, um, the um, darn. What was that thing called? It was going to be like an Outlook clone, the open source uh, Chandler. Chandler, remember Chandler? Chandler. I'm going to call it the Chandler phenomenon because there's a great book about that, um, written by Scott Rosenberg about the Chandler project called. Was it Dreaming in Code? Dreaming in Code, yes. Yeah. Um, Ding ding ding! Scott Rosenberg. Scott Rosenberg was uh, one of the create one of the founders of Salon. And uh, um, worked on that for a year, and is basically just a, actually a great tech reporter at heart. And um, he followed along with the Chandler team, which was an open source project to create something that was going to be sort of like a modern internet web 2.0 version of Lotus Agenda, which was an old DOS 
PIM, Personal Information Manager from the old DOS days uh, that Mitch Kapoor had worked on. And he, he put up $5 million um, to create an open source uh, organization, OSAF, that would build this app uh, and do things. And um, uh, Scott documented the whole thing. A very interesting thing is that they worked on it for several years. They had a lot of restarts, a lot of going back and forth on the design. And um, eventually, I, I, I think there is a product now, but they pretty much just failed to converge for all intents and purposes. They just did not eventually get a product, which is very strange. And when you read Dreaming in Code, you can see why, because um, they, their vis- they, they had vision statements. They had hallucinations. They were eating mushrooms. I mean, they had lots and lots of vision, but none of their, <laughs> <laughs> none of their vision... Right. And, and this is something that goes wrong with a vision. Their vision was full of adjectives. You know, it said, for example, a lot, a lot of their vision statement, whenever you try to, re- I mean, you can see this all, it's clearly documented in Dreaming Code. A lot of the things that they wanted, they sort of said, this will be, and their vision would then have some adjective, like easy to use, or simplified, or um, friendly, or um, integrated. And, and, and for example, there was this vision in, in Chandler that they, they called no silos. Like, instead of having all your email stuff in your inbox and all your calendar items in your calendar, those were silos, and they didn't want to have any silo. They wanted an email to be just like an appointment, which is really, really strange, and something that, for example, Outlook has been trying very, very hard to figure out how to make an email be sort of like an appointment in some ways for years and years and years and years, and they've gotten them about as close as they can, but to some extent, that's not the right thing to do. But it, it didn't matter. The point is that their vision described where they wanted to get, but not how they were going to get there. Like, they kept talking about no, no silos, but they never, ever explained, like, what does that mean? Nothing about their vision said, what does that mean that my email comes in on a calendar? Does it appear on today's date when it comes in? Or my calendar items? Or I don't get it. How, how can your calendar items in your email be? They never answered that question, and they just constantly kept coming up with these um, specs and vision statements that described in adjectives where they, what they wish their product would be like without ever well, saying what they would do. Grandiose vision though. I mean, what if my vision statement is I'm going to build a really awesome operating system. That's right. Help. Exactly. That's the problem is that you said it was going to be awesome. <laughs> so it's okay to right. want to have an awesome operating system, but you, if you haven't figured out how you're going to do it, you're not even ready to have a vision statement yet. You got to say it's going to be fast. And you can't even say that. Because that's still an adjective. You have to say it's going to, I don't know, what would make an operating system fast? It's going gonna, it's gonna to use, uh, it's going to recognize the new reality of RAM being cheaper than hard drives by storing everything in RAM with some kind of a backing scheme kind of, I don't know. Let's say something, now, now you're actually talking about a feature that you might implement. And now you've got a vision statement. But before, when you just said it's going to be fast, but you haven't told me how to do that, then that's just a recipe for fail. Right. Well, kind of like when we said we wanted to be sort of the, the opposite of the experts exchange. I mean, at least then you're being sort of concrete about mm-hmm. what you don't like about it is mm-hmm. that, you know, you know what it does. It's basically Q&A. Yeah. But when you come there through Google or whatever, you have to scroll all the way down and stuff like that. So that's right. that's reasonably concrete. So you could couch it in terms of what other operating systems do. Sure. You could say like, you know, BIOS, you want to be heavily multi-threaded. That would be informative in a vision statement, right? Mm-hmm. Or doing everything in memory, that would be, you know, a good design. Right. But if you said time. it's social, that, that I don't know yes. what that means. Um, if, you know, Flock is a great example. It's the web browser, but it's social. It's the social web browser. What does that, <laughs> what does that mean? That it's got a bunch of toolbars for, for Twitter? 
What? Yeah, I never really understood what they were trying to do. But but again, this goes giving back you an to, adjective. If somebody tells you what flock is and you can't understand it, that's your problem. Mm-hmm. Building it is not the problem. The problem is that it doesn't really make sense to anyone what you're doing. It's sort of weird. Then there are. There, it's uh, you're absolutely right. It has to be. There has to be a an elevator pitch and certain things things will get ignored especially deeply technical stuff if somebody stands up and gives you a deeply technical presentation on why you should be using some bizarre API architecture or something like that and you don't understand it then it's fairly safe to assume that most people also won't understand it therefore they won't use it and therefore it's safe to ignore that's something I learned from Dave Weiner if you try to read the spec for some new technology there was all that like WS- stuff WS-interrupt WS. do you remember that? yep Nobody could nobody could read those specs. They were just too, they were written by bureaucrats at IBM. They made no sense. They were they were they were, they were incomprehensible and, and, and very very difficult to understand. Another example which I was facing the other day just for fun, I I happened upon this thing called oh what is it called? Uh, I, I won't go into it because I'm just going to make another five weeks of all the object oriented people calling us up. <laughs> but. Let's, it, was a, it was a fairly simple concept that had been blown up into a like 135-page spec that was incomprehensible, written by bureaucrats on committees. And you can sort of safely say, you don't have to get angry about that stuff. You don't have to say, oh, God, this is so incomprehensible. All you have to say is, look, if I can't understand this the first time I read it, probably nobody else is either. So this is not going to be an important technology that it's important to interoperate with. I can safely ignore it and get on with my life. Right. No, understandability at the vision statement level is really critical. And, and I, I knew that when we built Sacroflow, we had a good idea because and I think even when you originally pitched it to me, what you said was it's like ex- experts exchange, but without all the sort of evil that goes with it. And I immediately got what you were talking about. Right. Like immediately. Right. And anyone that I was talking to, if I said this to them, they were like, oh, I hate experts exchange. <laughs> you know, I hate to beat up on experts exchange, we but really it really shouldn't. is true. <laughs> it is, it is my policy. Experts exchange a really... is a wonderful competitor. We love being in their marketplace. They've done a great job for all these years. Yes. Never they make it very easy for us better. by being the bad guy. They do. That's what I'm trying to say. They, they do. And it, it's it immediately understandable to people what we're trying to do uh, for that reason. So that's when I knew we had a, uh, what I considered to be a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, that had met a real need in the market and a real need for you know just the average programmer even right so but yeah that was a great blog entry we probably talked about that for quite a while I had another thing that came up that I wanted to talk about um, this was a big popular item on Reddit titled has Joel Spolsky been honest about his time at Microsoft GW basic guy is no fan oh yeah he's had, the guy that he's the, he was the architecture he was the original architecture astronaut that I that got into arguments with early on. And he was shut down by the establishment at Microsoft, basically. Right, and his name was Gregory Witten. Is Greg that right? Witten. Yeah, it's still, that's, that's still his name. He's a nice guy, very nice guy. He's a very, very, very smart guy. Um, uh, was definitely very heavily involved in all the early versions of BASIC, and later, sort of in an application architecture group at Microsoft, that uh, uh, quite honestly was well. I don't know. I just don't. I don't know what they were doing. But it was by the time I got there. Um, they were, they were proposing silly things, and um, they were just told to stop bothering us. Right. So then, after the fact, years later, he sort of came up and had a different take on your story on this. No, I don't think there's any difference between his take and my take at all. Is there? I don't think there's any contradiction between my story and his story. He was uh, the other guy. <laughs> yeah, he's obviously on his side. He obviously thought I was stupid and wrong, but but there was no. 
you know, it, it is the case that they did, we did, we Microsoft did the stupid and wrong thing that I wanted to do, and not the intelligent and brilliant thing that he wanted to do. Oh, really? So you actually sort of more agree with his take? No, no, actually. Oh, yeah, I'm not really sure. You know what? This he wrote this five years ago, and and I wrote my thing five years before that, and this whole thing happened in 1992, which right. was 16 years ago. Um, yes. So I'm not entirely sure what he's talking about. I do believe that when he says that. That, that what I did was I went off and I built something using some interface that caused them to spend 30 years instead of two years or something like that. I'm not sure what he's talking about, but I believe that actually that wasn't really my decision. There was a question as to whether on the Excel team we had to integrate the Visual Basic compiler and the Visual Basic editor and the Visual Basic forms editor and the Visual Basic forms runtime. And, and we had to integrate those things into the Excel code. And I think what he's talking about is that he wanted to use the Olay 2.0 interfaces for that integration, mm-hmm. which Olay 2.0 was renamed COM, but at that time it was called Olay 2.0. And I'm pretty sure that what happened is our development team was like, no way, and there were two reasons. And this wasn't, this wasn't me. I think he's blaming on me, but it wasn't actually me. It was, the de- it, was, it was the development team. Maybe it was me. I don't know. It was 16 years ago. Who remembers? The trouble with the Olay interfaces in those days, the Olay 2.0 interfaces, is Olay 2.0 wasn't shipping. It was a brand new thing that didn't exist yet. So it was an external dependency on a technology that was very far from being proven. And the other prob- problem with Olay was that it was uh, the Olay, those of you who use Com know that it's a C++ interface. And it is theoretically possible to use it from C, but you have to construct your own V tables. You have to basically emulate C++ in order to use Com from C code. And Excel was C code. It, it was not C++ code, and we weren't about to switch our compiler. And so what I believe that what he's talking about is the fact that the first versions of Visual Basic integrated into Excel, I think the version that was in Excel 5.0, if I'm not mistaken, uh, used a, a DLL model where they took the, the VB compiler, they put it in a DLL, and the interface for all that stuff and all that embedding, instead of being based through COM, uh, and Olay, uh, in play, uh, Olay 2.0 um, was just through some custom plain old C interfaces that you called that were exports from the DLL that we called from the, from the executable. So that's a, that's right. a highly technical conversation. And um, when I, and that, so that was, that was the version of Excel that I worked on, um, but I'm, I, I would bet dollars to donuts that that was entirely a decision made by the development team because I don't see why a program manager would have any input whatsoever in whether... Uh, you know, what particular interface was used to, to, to write the code if they wanted to use COM or Olay or whatever. I couldn't care less. Well, now, Joel, would you agree with the statement that Joel Spolsky was a basically ignorant junior employee? Yeah, for sure. Microsoft. I was definitely an ignorant junior employee. No, no question. <laughs> I did leave after three years, so he got all that right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, well, I did notice some warning signs in this. And it looks like this is a, a, a personal email, so I think some of the context here might be lost because I don't think Gregory intended this to be published message on the internet uh, i don't know how that happened no i'm not really sure i think i think what happened is that he he uh somebody probably asked him to comment on the the story that i told i see and and he that was his it was his response to that and i i i, I don't i mean he probably didn't object to it being published but there's a couple warning signs in this email to me just mm-hmm. reading through it not knowing all the context and stuff and one is that, okay, we're talking about an architect, and we already sort of have a bias against people who give themselves, particularly people who enjoy the title of architect. Right. <laughs> usually not a good sign. Yeah. Right? Uh, and then also, he has a PhD, and we know that you don't like 
Well, I learned not to like PhDs because <laughs> because of him and his group. There were four PhDs there, and there yeah. was something enormously impractical about what they were doing. Yes. Enormously. Yeah. And, and there were – and what, what, what's weird is it's, it's very, very hard to tell. You know, there's no question that, that he was – Meeting with people and 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 I don't I don't know if he was he was he wasn't writing I don't remember seeing a spec with his name on it. There's no question that he was meeting with people and talking about things, and inventing stuff like um, Com and Olay 2.0 and Cairo. Remember Cairo is the first failed attempt to make an object-oriented operating system. And there's no question that he was talking to people. But the people I mean there were people like Tony Williams and Bob Atkinson that I saw actually defining the specs and creating com. I, I don't remember Greg Witten there. I don't, so I don't know how, like how Greg worked with Bob and, 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 and Tony and the various people that, that actually built what became com and LA 2.0 and, and later versions of that and earlier versions of that and all that kind of stuff. So I don't really know what the working relationship was between him as sort of the architect and the people that actually did it. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of say, well, they've, you, you know, if, if you were in the, that position as an architect, you might actually think that, yeah, I can see how you might think that you invented all this stuff, whether or not you really did <laughs> or, or not. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, just, I, had no, I have no idea what went, what, what went on on those teams. It's also ancient history at this point, right? Extremely I mean, it is kind of weird that, you know, this, that email was written in 2005. Yeah. You wrote your article in what, like 2000? Right. So Ooh, I still, years, technically, years I still have another after year before. Fact. <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> We're talking about ancient history at this point. It's like, just truly. a very, very, very slow debate that's going on about something completely irrelevant that happened a very, very long. So time. in another five years, you'll have a response to this. I think I'm, right. I, I think I have at least another year before I have to respond according to the rules of the <laughs> slow debate society. Right. So well, I have no can... I have no official response, um, but uh, I, I you know I don't think there's any contradiction between my side of the story and his side of the story, except that he had his perspective and I had my perspective, and it is definitely the case that the uh, and I think that, that he admits this too that the that that the Excel team and the Visual Basic team basically outvoted him, and and right. he, whether whether they were right or wrong uh, is is debatable. Now the, the on on the uh, just to finish the story about the com versus the DLL interface to that thing, um, it, it is certainly the case that in the next version of Excel, um, it com was was working and and was somewhat reliable and object. Um, it, it was really Olay 2.0. It was the idea of um, embedding documents in other documents and stuff like that. And 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 uh, those interfaces and and the object model um, were. Uh, eventually worked, and so the VBA team eventually, instead of just supplying a DLL, uh, you know, wrapped their stuff up as COM objects, and Excel started using the COM interfaces to those things. And, but Joel, uh, you know, this is why this is why I like Reddit though, because the the top voted post I think summarizes it in a much more explainable way. It says, in RoboCop terms, <laughs> uh, Gregory Whitten was Dick Jones, Joel was Bob Morton, hmm. and Bill Gates was the old man. So that to me. It's a lot easier than reading a lot of prose about this. Like, I go. just need everything explained in movie you know what, terms. It, what bothers me is that, is that you know what, the, the, these things, this went to the top of Reddit. Yes. It's, a, it's like an like, like unbelievably minute technical debate over something that happened like, like I said, 16 years ago. And not only that, lest you think that Greg Whitten is mad, mad at me, he was one of the early clients of Fog Creek Software Consulting. Like he hired us to do stuff. He, he, it's not that he doesn't like me. But... Um, but uh, what, what's, what's interesting is that there's such a need on the internet for conflict because it's just so interesting to read. Right. Like, like there's just a need to have – like if, if the story was 
you know, if you look at the headline on Reddit, like the, was Joel honest with, I don't think there's any evidence, I don't think anybody believes for a minute that there's any evidence that there's any contradiction between the story I told and the story Greg told. It's just the two, two sides of the same coin. You know, I told it from my perspective and he told it from his perspective. But, um, so the most you could say is that there was like an interesting little spat, which might be fun to follow along with. But there's this need to have a narrative. Everybody wants there to be a story about like, you know, oh, you know, Joel, the big internet celebrity, he made his, 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 his claim to fame is that he created VBA, and actually, Greg Witten thinks he's a junior employee. Right. And, 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 and um, it, it, it says more about people on the internet that they, that they need to read these stories of conflict and drama that aren't really true. I mean, we had the same thing with Uncle Bob, you know? But I, I think that the comments were nice on you – know, people dissed the comments on Reddit a little bit, but I think you've got to give them a little bit of credit because I was surprised oh, yeah. actually with the quality of a lot of the conversation on Reddit. Well, they uh, saw right through what was actually happening. Well, which I thought was great. Yeah. I mean they had a pretty good analysis, and it was pretty calm. It wasn't like, you know, ooh, you know, let's watch a fight. It was like, no, I think it's two sides of the same coin and et cetera, et cetera. They, they essentially got it. Yeah. And there was a minimum, a surprisingly little amount of noise in the comments, as much as people like to sort of criticize Reddit. That's really been on my mind because I've been looking a lot at like Hacker News recently, and Hacker News has a reputation for being more uh, uh, sane, mm-hmm. uh, sort of comments and discussion. Mm-hmm. But I didn't find the discussion on Reddit really. It was fairly high quality, actually. Yeah, it's the programming um, Reddit. It's the programming subreddit. That's why. Yes. No. No. Not on the normal Reddit. Normal Reddit's kind of a wasteland. But well, what happens Reddit, is like the, the thing gets focused. submitted to the programming Reddit, and then it can actually make its way up to most people's homepage because that's by default. If you go to Reddit, you'll see the top art, the top story. If a story is big enough in programming Reddit, you'll see it. Oh, really? Yeah. It'll bleed over into just the regular. Exactly. So, like the main homepage you see if you go to Reddit, you're not logged on or anything like that, is actually a mixture of of like six or seven of the most popular Reddits. Right. Well, I was thinking about Hacker News again because mm-hmm. – and did you know this? I felt kind of like a doofus because I – for a long time when we looked at Hacker News, I thought that it only allowed upvotes. On did the, you know that – On the, on stories, it's only upvotes. But you, but you knew that there were downvotes on comments. I guess so. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay, you had seen it. I actually hadn't seen it. So when I, I wrote an article on the Stack Overflow blog about this, just analyzing the choice of you know what right. if you didn't allow downvotes. And I was only partially correct, and I made a correction almost immediately because somebody posted a comment saying, oh, by the way, you can, you can downvote, but, comments, you need but the, the UI is not visible at all until you reach a certain threshold, and that threshold has been moving a lot I because I guess that. there's inflation in the system. I did not know what the, that there was a threshold for that. I just sort of – I guess I, was always, I always had enough points, so I never noticed that. But I did know yeah. always that it was, it was – it's always Paul Graham's intention that there be a core of people that just remove things that are off topic that they just don't care to see. Yes. And for the most part, the system works really well. I mean, I, I like Hacker News. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a little bit entrepreneurial, so you have to kind of like that side of stuff. Sure, because it is the think- Y Combinator. Like, every Y Combinator kid is going to be on there all day long. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a certain bent to it. But I, I do have a little bit of an objection, because I, I posted that article on Stack Overflow blog about just an analyzing the effect of downvotes. And mm-hmm. I, I think they're, it's actually important to have downvotes for reasons that aren't really that intuitive, um, but you have to balance it, and you know we did. Where first of all, there's there's a cap on the total number you can cast per day, which I think they desperately need on Hacker News. I think it's crazy that they don't have caps on votes at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. And also, you know, well, it doesn't uh, downvotes. It, yeah, it hasn't downvotes hasn't them yet, and they don't uh, they don't count for nearly as much as an upvote. I mean, they're they're heavily weighted down. 
so that people don't overuse them. So it's important to manage the downvotes. I mean, yeah. absolutely. You don't want to have willy-nilly downvoting because that is really dangerous. There's a lot of danger uh, in allowing downvotes. But for, for example, the way front page stories can't be downvoted, uh, Paul Graham immediately jumped in and defended that and says, well, we don't need downvotes because uh, we have, and I think his exact words, we have non-lame users that are able to submit non-lame stories. So the system's kind of self-regulating. What they do have is they have the cabal of the 30 editors. 30? Really? I thought it was like two. Okay. No, it's 30. Hey, how, Paul, how come I'm not an editor? <laughs> Damn it. I don't know. You'll have to discuss that with Paul. <laughs> but uh, it's a little weird that there's this cabal of editors. And one of the downsides is that stuff doesn't get killed very rapidly. Because for it to get killed, it has to be killed no, by one of these 30, you know, the octagon-style we don't even know how they exist, editors. <laughs> um, and, and I have a little bit of problem with that because I think upvotes get weighted really heavily in the system. And there's articles that show up on Hacker News that just I don't understand. Like today and yesterday, there was an article about marijuana use. Like, do you use marijuana as a developer? And I was like, how is this related? I, I just don't know how an article like that could be on the front page. There was another one on like flirting, like how to flirt, like I guess programmatically. Yeah, like if you're a geek, how to be a. Yeah, that and was, I just that was a little that made me, that was sort of I believe the term is cringeworthy. Yeah, exactly. These are a little bit cringeworthy. <laughs> I mean, not that they aren't legitimate topics and all, but that. And there was another one on the drug war that I really objected to. That was from the Economist. So it was, it was an, an editorial site. from the Economist. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting article, I'm sure. But I, it's like, are they really going to tell me something about the drug war, or the futility of the drug war that I haven't read a million? It's, you know, what, these times. are the things. These are the things that you would have kind of if you were in a room full of young programming startup geeks these are the things they would talk about and a lot of them are about programming and a lot of them are off topic but they are the things that are interesting to the young programming startup geeks yeah that's but really the, the, that's the that's the defining factor and i know it, it, it it's it's obviously odd for them to have you know say an editorial from the economist about the drug war but there is definitely a libertarian bent among that community mm-hmm. um so but I feel like since there's no downvotes, there's just no way to really clear that stuff off. I mean, if it gets no, flat, you have to vote something else up. Go find something better and vote them all up because you have an unlimited number of upvotes, right? So just go vote up 39 things on the homepage that aren't that. And that's the equivalent <laughs> I, of downvoting. It's not quite the same thing, though. I don't know. I, I just, know, but but I, I guess I guess what he's saying is like, look, if you don't like it, just relax. Maybe other people won't like it. Don't be so negative. Go find something you do like and tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, uh, for the most part, it works, but I, there are some notable exceptions that just really give me yeah. pause. These things, you know what? I feel like we're we're in Clay Shirky land here, where um, <laughs> we are, you know, we're, we're we're writing these manifestos about how our systems work and how that's better than how that system works and so forth. And then you grow a little bit, and suddenly that doesn't quite work anymore. The world changes, and the way people are changes, and you're like, hmm, oh, actually, maybe we need to do this other thing. And my manifesto was a little bit too simplified. Like I wrote this thing called Building Communities with Software about how to make discussion groups. And it was totally optimized for a discussion group where you're just trying to get the thing to take off, to, to, to trying to get a minimum number of people in there so that mm-hmm. the thing works. And you're trying to kind of spark it. And, but once you have 50,000 people every day on your discussion group, the, the design, the, the requirements for the design change. And then you think, oh, my God, I've just discovered a new thing. And you write another manifesto. And this all goes back to Clay Shirky's article. Do you remember the name of that article? Um, A Group is Its Own Worst Enemy. A Group is Its Own Worst Enemy. Where he says, and then what happens inevitably is somebody comes along and they're like, oh, I just 
discovered America, and you're actually just discovering step three. And then when you get to step four, you discover all the things that everybody else discovered in step four. So, for example, when I launched the discussion groups and I wrote that Building Communities with Software, I really did have this attitude like, this is the perfect way to build a community with software. It's just awesome. It's perfect. <laughs> and uh, you should always do this exactly. And, um, and somebody randomly emailed me and said, yeah, yeah, you're going to have all that stuff that Slashdot has soon with the voting and the upvotes and the five and the mods and the threads and the... And I was like, no, I'm never going to have slash dot. But like, lo and behold, when you get to a certain size, you need to have votes. And I actually like the Reddit way of having lots of votes rather than the slash dot way of cutting you off at five. But, um, uh, you know, we never, and I, I still don't like threads. But, oh, I hate threads. We were having this discussion on Twitter. I really cannot deal. Yeah. I, I can get behind one level of threading, maybe two at gunpoint. You mean where you have like comments? Like, like yeah. we have with Q&A. That's effectively comments. what we have on Stack Overflow. We have effectively one level of threading because mm-hmm. you have comments. That works But really two well. maybe if I was being held at gunpoint, but there's absolutely no way. Because I, I was actually getting into some discussions on Hacker News about the article that I wrote. And it yeah. was just – it was so painful. Like I was losing context of where I was and it's I just hate that whole tree model. It you just know what? It works, for, it works way, great for 20 to 30 comments. And once you get to about 100 and 150, it all starts to fall apart. But that's the same claim people make about you know non-threaded, like mm-hmm. a flat list, which I actually don't think is true, ironically, is that no. if you're reading a flat list, you tend to just – most people aren't – TLDR, right? Nobody's going to read the whole damn thing anyway. That's mm-hmm. the illusion of threading. You have this idea that, well, people will read this thread and they'll read each individual response, and nobody cares. Once you get beyond a certain vertical threshold, mm-hmm. nobody gives a crap about the little conversation you're having with this other person, right. except you and that person. So if you've ever seen you – if you've ever seen a threaded discussion group on a non-programming site, the people misuse the threads like crazy. Like they'll just they'll just they'll post things wherever because they don't know what they're doing. They don't get the thread model like the reg- regular human beings. Let's call them civilians. They don't understand mm-hmm. the thread model, and they'll just respond in the wrong place. They'll they'll be, they'll be like, "Why did you put that as a, you know, why did you append that here, and why didn't you put that in that thread?" And blah blah blah. People just add things at the bottom, and it's just a it's kind of a free for all, but um, but anyway, I do I do want to say that the other thing that uh, I wrote in building communities with software was, you know, again because I was talking about trying to spark a discussion group, you know, where you're just trying to build a community and you have a very small number of people and you really need, need to get them coming back to bring that thing to life the first time, and um, and I said you can't ha- you can't have registration, which is of course correct if you need to get a few people in the first time. Um, but, uh, you know, years later, Joel, the Joel and Software Discussion Group and the Business of Software Discussion Group on Joel and Software had finally gotten to the point where I just didn't want to go in there because it was just not interesting. People were not talking about interesting stuff. And there was a lot of what I felt was spam and a lot of sort of people being disrespectful. And I don't know. It was just a – it was starting to become a, a little bit uh, – I don't want to say a cesspool quite, but it was just like, I don't know, a mess. And I added – I just checked a little box that said require registration. So you do now have to register to post. And you can register with a fake email address and you can make up any name you want. It doesn't really matter. And you know, lo and behold, the quality of the conversation got better. Mm-hmm. And um, it, uh, it's uh, a lot. And, and we didn't lose any users. Everybody was like, I'm leaving. I refuse to register. I'm out of here. Goodbye. <laughs> the dramatic exit yeah. message. You'll miss me. You won't have me to push around anymore. And uh, like the one I got on Twitter the other day was like, "I'm not, I'm not going to subscribe to your Twitter anymore." I'm like, well, thanks for the update. You know, it's like, who are you? What are I you am doing? logging off. Uh, Goodbye. Funny. You have lost my valuable attention. 
Yes. Um, but the, the numbers didn't go down on either of those discussion groups when I had the registration. The quality went up. And, but that's just that, that's, that's a specific function of the specific community at the specific size. And at different sizes, different things may happen. And you, your, your mileage may, may vary. So, um, but, but I do, I, I, it keeps coming back to Clay Shirky. Um, wait, I'm going to, I got I to gotta find the, should I try to find the quote? Clay, how fast can I find it? Shirky. Group well, you try to find it. I want to make enemy. one point while you're doing that, which is you brought yeah. up the point of hierarchy, yeah. where programmers love hierarchy to an, a degree that they don't even understand how different they are than the public in this regard. Yeah. Like they love putting everything in its little bucket that goes in this little bucket, which is this sub-bucket of this and this. And normal people hate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and threading is totally a manifestation of that. And it drives me crazy that a lot of programmers can't see that. They're like immediately like, oh, threading is good. I love threading. What are you talking about? You know, they can't see it at all. Right, right. Like myopia. Yeah, I mean it's really a function. It's a, a function of the size and the the group. And and one thing that I've learned through years and years of usability testing is that anything that smacks of a hierarchy or a tree is not going to be understandable to the average uh, non technical user. Yeah, you totally just have to, agree. You just have to learn that if it's a tree or if it's a hierarchy, like eighty percent of the regular people, yeah, are going to get confused and, and not quite get it. And you know what's really funny is Paul Graham actually responded to that. Somebody submitted my article, and, and I put a comment, and Paul um, – well, actually, Paul responded first. And I was responding to Paul, and I actually got it wrong. Like I put my comment in at the root level mm-hmm. and made a mistake. <laughs> so I had to go in and delete my comment and say, oh, this is – no, this is a reply. <laughs> there, okay, oh, here you go. God. I'm going I'm to read the quote by Clay Shirky. He says – now, there's a large body of literature saying, quote, we built this software, a group came and used it, and they began to exhibit behaviors that surprised us enormously. So we've gone and documented these behaviors. Over and over and over again, this pattern comes up. And so I, I guess what he's sort of, he's making fun of the fact that um, nobody ever reads any of these documents about what these behaviors are and what these social patterns are. And they always just build it anyway without having read any of the prior art and prior documentation and stuff like that. They just, they just build something. And then they write these documents about what happened and they're all very pleased with themselves and they don't realize pretty much just how much prior art there is and just how much is known about these things. Right. Um, but we did, st- well, to be fair, we, we tried to do our research. I mean, we researched all these sites and obviously I know Clay and I've read everything Clay's written. So Yeah. Yeah. To the hey. extent that we make these mistakes, it's really bad because we've theoretically done all the research. We've done a we lot of it. In, yeah, we've seen a we lot. We went in eyes open, so if we made any mistakes, we're really dumb, which we probably have. Hey, um, I have a, a listener question. We're, we're starting. We've been talking for yes. a long time, but I want to play this Let's listener question because it's uh, – Hi, Joel and Jeff. I've noticed that as Stack Overflow has increased in popularity, there's also been an increase in the number of non-programming-related questions about system administration, particularly from search engine users who aren't familiar with the purpose of the site. You guys have talked in the past about building a Stack Overflow sister site for questions like this, but there doesn't seem to be any progress being made on that front. I understand that you guys are busy improving Stack Overflow, but what exactly are the underlying technical challenges in using its code base on a separate question database? Is the primary limitation here manpower, or is it simply too risky to simultaneously maintain two instances of the current site with separate databases? That question, by the way, by Nick Ryman. When was that submitted? How old is that question? I don't know. It's from this week. Oh, it's new. Yeah. Well, we I guess it's a communication breakdown between us and Nick because we yeah, are... Yeah, pay attention, Nick. Well, no, I mean, it's our problem, not Nick's, is that we need to get the word out. Um, but yeah, we are building an IT site, obviously. And, and to answer Nick's specific question, the thing holding us back was, and this is a theme with a lot of programming stuff, is like when you go to N of greater than one, it's sort of a <laughs> big deal. You know what I mean? Like... 
you have to make the code work work with two or more of those things. Yeah. And having two sets of the code base basically doubles our our overhead. We have to make sure we've made some of the right... We've baked the V1 good enough that when we have two of these things running around, we're not going to have to fix both of them at the same time in dramatic, you know, in unexpected ways. Um, Right. And and to that end, I mean, we're in the middle of the database refactoring, which is actually going really well. Uh, And to me, that's the biggest blocking factor. And having another copy of the code sitting on another server, just we have to have a saner core table database schema that more accurately reflects like how we now understand the system to work. We also want to be able to sort of share user identities uh, and share, um, uh, have the ability to, to move a question from, from one group to the other. So it's not a trivial matter of just making a complete clone of what we have. Well, the, one thing that frustrates me is I, people are always asking for a discussion area, like a pure discussion area. And that was another reason I wanted to get more like into chat. Reddit and yeah. Hacker News, was to get more into the pure discussion area. Because Stack Overflow is not really a discussion system, as we've discussed before, because it's, it's really designed around the premise of somebody asks a question, and you, you, somebody provides answers. That's that, it. That, that is not the same as a discussion. Now, there is some right. side effecty stuff that happens there, and that's fine. Uh, but if you take that system and you try to make a real, like, say, let's just have a pure discussion board using Stack Overflow, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be really painful. You'll think it's working, but it's going to just break down in really bizarre ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the challenge of having, like, say, a discussion site, like, say, the, people say, Jeff, why don't you just set up a PHPBB discussion board? Well, it would have to be integrated with Stack Overflow to some degree, right? That's a pain in the butt. Do you want to create another login? No, you probably to, want your identity to, to, to work. Yeah, you've got to carry forward your identity. This is what you're talking about with the yep. two sites. They need to have some sort of semi-shared identity system. Um, and it's the same real set of problems. But we're ready to attack those problems now. We've gotten to the point where we have a V1 that we feel good about. We've gotten all the major features in. Uh, we're doing this core refactoring to pay down our technical debt, which is what I call that. Um, and we're definitely ready to move forward on that. And then once we have two sites, then you can talk about having you know, N sites, where N is larger than two. So that's on the table as well. Mm-hmm. So these things are all coming. So that's a, it's a good question by Nick. Cool. Okay. I have, I have one other thing. I, well, I guess we have Stack Overflow. Before we get to Stack Overflow questions, can I talk about something a little bit technical that we ran into with Stack Overflow that I thought was really interesting? It's Well, is it on a Stack Overflow subject? Uh, yeah, it is. Okay, so let's go ahead and Stack Overflow that. Uh, I mean, yes, go ahead. This is Stack Overflow podcast. <laughs> so one thing we ran into recently was that we had a certain set of queries that, that in, in SQL Server that we thought were just fundamentally slow queries. Like we'd run them, and they would be slow, and we would try to optimize them in various ways. And they, wouldn't just, they just wouldn't optimize really well. So we'd sort of resign ourselves, like, okay, these are just slow queries, right? There's something about the database that makes these slow queries. Uh, and Brent Ozar, our, our database guy, uh, sent me an email saying, this, these queries that you're running are slow, which we knew. I was like, okay, Brent, I know that these are slow because we've looked at them before. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. These are, these are not slow. And I was like, what? These aren't slow? He's like, yeah, if you run them in the actual like, non-parameterized versions, they're fast. And I was like, I don't mm-hmm. believe this. So I, I, I went through the exercise of doing it, and sure enough, Brent was right. If I ran it in like, just the window, the, the SQL query window, mm-hmm. they were fast, like blazingly fast. I was like, wow. But if I ran them as uh, parameterized queries, they were slow. So then I started looking at this, like, how can this even be? What, what is going on here? How, what's the difference between a parameterized query and a regular query? There's almost no difference at all, right? One is just a compiled form of the other. Uh, uh, oh, let me guess. Let me guess. Well, go ahead. Guess if you think so. You know so you're telling me that you, had, that you actually had this, this select statement in, as a string in your source code. 
Well, no, it was parameterized in the code. It was parameterized. So it was like select blah, 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 from blah, 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 blah. And then there was like a little at sign and a one and an at sign. Yep. And a, That's um, right. Okay, my guess would be, and, and it was fast if you like cut and pasted that into the query window and got rid of the With parameters. Yep, that's right. Totally okay. correct. Here's, here's my guess. It's totally random. My guess is that the, um, the, uh, um, uh, the SQL engine was looking at the first 255 characters of the query and saying, oh, wait, I got a plan for this cache somewhere else. And it was going off and using that plan. And it just happened to be the same in the first 255 characters as some other query somewhere else. That, and so it was using an inefficient plan. No. I would never Darn. hire you. For, for <laughs> See, I just made that up because I don't really know that that's well, how Well, you just failed the job interview. That was No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it was really weird. What was happening was, and I actually posted this on Twitter. I was like, how can this be? Yeah. And actually somebody came back and said, it, the problem is a bad plan that's cached in the query. Yeah, that's what and I said. That, well, that's not what you said. <laughs> well, that's not what I heard. <laughs> What's actually happening is it's, it's looking at the initial <coughs> input. Use, meaning the variables, mm -hmm. the, the parts of the, like, you're saying select all salespeople where state is equal to, say, California. So the state would be a variable. So the query processor, for some reason, is, is taking the initial value that you used, California, say, right. and making some set of decisions about how to optimize the query that are 100% just horrible. Horrible. Oh, based on the assumption that it's going to be California. But on the assumption that it's going to be California every time or some crazy right, assumption right. like that. Right. Because that you gets cached. Got it. And stays in the cache. Every subsequent query for Ohio, for New York, for every, any other state is, has the same horrible, horrible performance. Is it because the first time you, you, you run the query, you just happen to ask for California, and therefore it, it got stuck with a bad... That's right. That's exactly right. It's totally variable. It's just if based on the first the right, time? You, yes. It's based on the first time execution. So if you happen to have a query that has a good execution plan initially, that's why it's you so frustrating out. to debug this. Is that what um, TB underscore update stats is supposed to fix? Well, actually, there's a new feature. So what you really want to do is say, hey, look, don't, don't treat the parameters you get as gospel. Like, go yeah. just do some sort of analysis and figure out the best optimization. Don't assume it's always going to be California. Right. And there's this actual command, and I swear I'm not making this up, called optimize for unknown. <laughs> and I, lo I love this terminology, just optimize <sighs> for the unknown. <laughs> you should always do that. Yes, you should always do that. It's a Put great that in your autoexec.bat. <laughs> Right, right after hi, ma'am. Yeah, right Every time you turn on your computer, optimize for Optimize for the unknown. Yeah. But the cool thing is it's like magic fairy dust. It really freaking works. If you put an optimize for unknown, it ignores the initial input parameters and does a statistical analysis of what the parameters could be. Optimize all, for unknown. And it always comes up with a really, really good execution plan. I swear to God, I'm going to go do this on every database at Cloud Creek right now. Well, you have to be careful. Optimize for unknown is a 2008 specific feature. Oh, darn. Um, there are equivalents that aren't quite as good in 2005 where you basically say, you know what? Ignore the execution plan you were going to do and do something else. Figure out it. <laughs> There's other hints you can put in. Oh. That happens to be, I think, the best hint in this particular case. I actually you really want to yeah. just use the statistics. The thing I said before about using update stats is actually uh, all it does is updates the actual uh, – percentage of which items are what in the columns so that yes. when it does try to make a query execution plan, it can be based on the actual new, what, what data you actually have. And so that is important to do. Right. But if you had a bad cached query plan based on correct stats, update stats yes. wouldn't fix it. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. What you can, but it was a hard problem to figure out because I just didn't even realize this was a possibility. Wow. You know, that a bad, really bad query plan would get cached, like, pretty consistently. Isn't this, anyway, that's my little story. I don't want to rant about SQL Server, but I'm going to have to. 
<laughs> it's like you're playing some kind of bizarre, messed up game with people where you're like, guess what I'm thinking of? Well, but coding is like that, though. I mean, there's all these things in coding that are the same kind of way. It's just this puzzle that you have to figure out. But and... it's not, because you know what it's like? It's like that stupid game Mist, where they showed you some beautiful bitmaps of of a of an island somewhere, and the whole uh, game was to figure out where to click on the bitmap. You, you know, the whole time what I wanted in Mist was like a giant shotgun or like a, a, <laughs> just a click huge gun where I could just blow everything up. I click totally everything. did not want to play their stupid puzzles. But they, but they weren't even, they, they were puzzles, but the entire, the only thing it was was just like, what should I click on? And you were just like, click, click. No, that's not alive. That's not alive. That's not active. That's not active. Oh, something happened when I click here. Oh, uh, that's horrible. And that's, that's, what, that's what SQL Server is like. It's like, it's like finally some, some, uh, somebody who's seriously like, and it, we've been, I don't know how long we've been writing SQL code here. We have system administrators. We've got all kinds of people. And you know, maybe we're optimizing for unknown at Fog Creek, but I'll bet you we don't have optimized for unknown. I'll bet you of our listeners that are listening who are SQL Server administrators or, or who are SQL <laughs> Server um, developers, the number of them that have probably even heard of this thing and would think to try it is is very small. Well, for what it's worth, when I asked on Twitter, a couple like world weary veterans were like, "Oh yeah, this is my life. Like I spend all this time struggling with you know the query optimizer and trying to figure out why it's doing what it's doing." Mm-hmm. So there are some people out there who are aware of it. They they knew about the optimized for unknown and stuff like that. All right, I swear we're putting that we're putting that in the startup uh, startup scripts for everything. That should take care of all of our slowdowns we've been having. Uh, Get things cleaned up around here. You want to be at least put it on the table because I didn't even realize that was a possibility. You know, that's like the compiler being wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And it can happen. Like the the query optimizer can make really bad decisions. Hey, can we do a quick? uh, Yeah, can we do a quick uh, question from Stack Overflow because I haven't done one for a while. I want to do six one two eight nine two. The question is by JJ, and he says how to deal with chronic time issues. And I guess he's a manager because he says, I have a developer on my staff that chronically overshoots deadlines and estimates. On several projects the last week or two, every day I hear it should be done by the end of the day. This developer does good work. I already spoke to him about his problems. He seems genuinely frustrated and miffed about what to do to correct them. My questions are, one, what kind of punishments for passing a deadline are effective? <laughs> Go right to the punishment. Yeah, good I manage. found that like, if you keep a soldering iron on your desk, you can sort of burn, burn his skin uh... with it. <laughs> Um, what ways can I coherence this employee to police his actions? That's not English. What ways can I coherence this employee to police his actions, time estimates, et cetera, himself? Yes. Coerce. I think he wants coerce. Yeah. Well, we, I, I, I'll edit it right now. Okay. Uh, what ways can I coerce this employee to police his actions, time estimates, himself? Um, uh, yeah, I like... I've, um, yeah, a lot of people just recommend that evidence-based scheduling. I mean, the problem here is, but I think the fundamental problem, if you're missing, if you're, if you're giving an estimate and it's taking too long, the problem is not that it's taking too long. It's that you gave the wrong estimate. So the first two problems are like, why is he given such optimistic estimates? And the number one reason why this happens, that, that developers are optimistic about when something will ship, is that they have never tried to make a list of what they have to do. And think about all the steps that they have to do. So the problem is just like a little bit too vaguely defined. They don't have a list of tasks that they're going to do. Uh, a granular, a highly granular list of very specific tasks that they know how to do. Because if you have that list, you might be like, all right, there's no way I can finish this in six to eight weeks. It's certainly going to take at least a year and a half. Um, did you see how I got the six to eight weeks joke in the podcast? That all the people that are drinking along with their drinking game. <laughs> 
We now have complaints that that's a valid question on Stack Overflow, by the way. We have a lot of meta stuff going on in Stack Overflow. And um, they're like, that's not a valid question. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, number one. That should, that should be a drinking game as well. It's like, yeah. when is a question valid for Stack Overflow? I'm just saying. And this, is the, this guy got a lot of the right answers. Number one, uh, uh, the, the business about punishments leads to the whole question about employee motivation and getting employees to do what you want them to do. And uh, um, there are, there's, a, there's a whole psychological theory of this. And um, the basic thing is that there's, the, the, the employee has some kind of behavior. There's something that they do. And it has antecedents. And then there's, it's ABC, antecedents, like things that cause the behavior. And then there's the behavior. And then C is the consequences, the results of this behavior. All right. So now, if you threaten to punish somebody, that's an antecedent. You're saying, I threaten to give you a negative consequence if you do that. That's something that you do before the behavior occurs. And a common psychological belief, and there are all kinds of tweaks to this, and there's all kinds of there's, there's more to it. But but psychologists will generally tell you that you can be much much more effective with consequences than with antecedents. In other words, you have to have a system whereby you give people positive feedback when they do good things and negative feedback when they do bad things. And you don't really worry about like, how do I ahead of time, a priori cause the behavior I want? Everything about sort of, I guess it's behaviorism is is what it's called, but, but it's a sort of psychological principle that if you want people to have a certain behavior, you have to make sure that you're rewarding the behavior when they do the right things and that you're not rewarding the behavior when they do the bad things. And you have to, those rewards... Uh, and punishments, uh, although the rewards are way more important than the punishments, it turns out. But they have to be very, very quick, like within days. It can't just be like, you know, months later when you do the annual review, you bring it up. You have to give and, – and it also has to be consistent. It has to be very, very reliable. Like you have to know that you're going to get a meaningful, reasonable, correct thing. And so in particular, one of the things that uh, – uh, one, one thing you can think about when you're thinking about getting the behavior you want from the people that are working for you is think about if you're not giving them enough positive feedback when they do the behaviors that you want them to do, then those behaviors are going to be extinguished, to use the technical term from psychology. They're going to stop doing them. In other words, if a developer writes some code and then goes to a lot of work to document it really well and to add a whole bunch of comments and to clean up their check-in so it doesn't have spurious commits that aren't relevant and to, I don't know, they just do a lot of stuff to do really good work and nobody ever compliments them or notices it or even says anything about all these documentation that they did and all the hard work they did, they're gonna, eventually they're going to stop putting in that much effort because it's not being recognized. And so it's, it's actually more important in getting the behaviors that you want that you provide positive reinforcement for the positive things. And when you think about your own motivation and the way people work, you need a lot of positive reinforcement to counter all the negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement is very, very damaging to morale. And so, um, you know, when I think about how, how I might get, I might write an article on, on Joel and Software, get 100 nice emails and one really nasty email, and the nasty email will bring me down for three days. And the 100 nice emails are like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. So uh, <laughs> and I'm not saying that I'm thin-skinned. I'm just saying that the negative, that, that, that negative, um, negative reinforcement or, or, negative, uh, or, or punishment or whatever is much more demotivating than positive reinforcement is motivating. You probably need a ratio of about 100 to 1 to keep well, people happy. And let's tie this to the earlier conversation. This is why downvotes have to be heavily like disincentivized because mm-hmm. yep. if you have a system where everybody's just willy-nilly handing out d- down votes that's equivalent to a job where everybody's constantly telling you how much you suck right and it's better just not to tell you that you did well which is yes. paul graham's idea 
Yeah. Just, well, essentially. Yeah. Just just tell me when I did well, and that that can get you giving people so, solely positive reinforcement. And I, I mean, you do have to tell them when they, they do things wrong, but that's got that's a much smaller part of the job. Then. Well, back in a previous life when I ran that painting business, one of the, the biz advice pieces they give you was like, for every time you poke someone, you give them two strokes. So there was already like an implied two-to-one ratio of you say something good and positive twice as much as you say anything that's negative. Yeah. That's probably not enough. And there's, a, there's, another, there's, another, there's a very common thing that's taught in management classes or whatever, which uh, um, uh, is that if you need to give somebody a negative feedback, you sandwich it. You give them positive feedback about all the good things they've been doing, and then you quickly slip in the negative feedback, and then you give them positive feedback about all the things they're doing. It's sort of the sandwich model to make it easy to go down. And, and there is actually the psychologists will probably tell you that that's just a, that's a, uh, uh, an old wives' tale, that that's not a good idea, that people do not notice the negative feedback if you sandwich it. They, they're not quite aware of that. And I've actually, I've actually seen that happen where you try, to, you try to sandwich it, which is considered a best practice by many management trainers. And uh, the sandwiching actually causes the people not to notice that this is actually something they're doing, which is a very major problem that they need to work on. So right. um, I think the, the, probably the best practice is m- you, you really have to have a lot of positive reinforcement about behaviors that you want and then you know, very little um, you know, quote-unquote punishment for the behaviors that you don't want. And um, in this particular case, it actually just sounds like his real problem you know, when he said he seems genuinely frustrated and miffed about what to do to correct them, it really seems like it's just sort of a, a coaching failure. You have to teach him how to do better estimates. And there, there, are, there are ways to do that. And, and a, a manager is also a coach and has to be able to teach their employees how to do their job. Right. Well, I was a little surprised that the answers don't actually include your key point of advice, which is, you know, start making a detailed list, like break it down. You well, that's, know, in, I mean, uh, that's the number two answer, the, uh, uh, the, the evidence-based scheduling. That's in the evidence-based scheduling article. Okay, good. Well, yeah. I, I think I might edit that to make it more clear that, you know, you just break things down. I mean, it's a failure of enumeration. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do this big nebulous thing and it's going to take X time. Well, it doesn't. Well, that's, well, that's, yeah, that's sort of the first of three steps in the, uh, in the EBS uh, three-step uh, right. program theory. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yep. Well, that, that was a good one. All right. Oh. Hey, I think this is a good podcast. Um, uh, oh, I, I have some. Uh, we, we got it. next week. Next week we're going to um, mix. Oh, right. We're going to be a mix. mix. Yeah, that's exciting because we're actually part of the keynote. That's all confirmed now. So oh, wait, it'll be both Joel and me. Oh, really? Um, so what we're hoping to to have happen, but but we don't know if it's going to work, uh, is that we'll do this next Tuesday or maybe Wednesday when we record our Stack Overflow podcast. We'll we'll try to do it in public somewhere at Mix if we can get a room somewhere. Um, so if you're going to be at Mix, you can actually come hear us record the podcast live, and maybe we'll take some live questions from the audience, or at least you'll just be able to kind of hear the recording of it live, and it'll be fun. Um, and we'll tell you it's not programming-related, and we'll close it immediately. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, um, so Stack, Overflow, Stack Overflow podcast live, hopefully. So look at blog.stackoverflow.com, and I'll also put something on joelandsoftware.com, and we'll tweet about it. So follow us on Twitter, Spolsky and Coding Horror, um, and uh, we'll let you know. If you're in if you're in Las Vegas next week, um, either Tuesday night or possibly Wednesday during the day, more likely Tuesday night, we'll do uh, <laughs> we'll do a Stack Overflow live, and hopefully we can get a group of you know a couple dozen people together and um, and um, and and do a big live one. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, that will be fun. That'll be a first for With us. Beer, hopefully. Now you've always beer. wanted to do it live, and we just never f- figured out how. We'll do it live. <laughs> just do it live. Screw it. 
<laughs> if you have any questions for us for next week, we don't. I only got one recorded question this week. Come on, guys, call in. Call in with your questions. You can either email an MP3 or a Vorbis file to podcast at stackoverflow.com or call us at 646-826-3879. Please spell your name and try to keep it under 90 seconds. There's a podcast um there's a podcast transcript that you can go to it's like a wiki where people all over the world contribute by writing down um transcripts of either parts or the entire podcast anything that you heard that you think might be interesting and you want to put it on our permanent record um please help the hearing impaired and the permanent record and the google impaired um by uh going to blog.stackoverflow.com and clicking on the wiki link down at the bottom the transcript wiki and uh you know just type in a minute or two of uh of what we said and uh, with everybody contributing, it's easy to get those done. Um, any other announcements? You, you forgot the phone. Did you forget the phone number yet? Didn't I say it? 646-826-3879. Or email podcast at stackoverflow.com. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.